uh, I'll tell you this in advance that um, I will try to let you guys go early today by at least 10 or 15 minutes, which means necessarily that I will have to speed through this thing uh, because I want to leave some time for discussion as well. Um, Lena is hosting us today. Um, Lena told me that it took her only 15 minutes to breeze through the article. Um, but I don't have hopes for you guys to even do a 15 minute reading. Uh, but in case you did, uh, does anyone want to? What article? Great. Uh, you're the only one who commented on Slack, Minhal. So, um, yes, Hafsa, uh, that turned out to be a lie because I didn't account for this accurately enough. Uh, but I will try to change that or not. We're just about done here. Uh, but okay, so those who did, what did the article say? I thought it was a nice, compact tying together of all the course concepts that we've done so far. Lots of familiar terms. Mm. Lela, you have your mic on. Yeah, the article was about moral outrage. A part of it spoke about how um, it's like a catharsis for us. So like if we release our outrage online and it's very uh, easy to do it instead of, you know, going to that person who you're outraged at. And then there's also um, the bandwagon effect that people just join in on uh, piling onto somebody. In the article, they gave an example of a woman who gave, like, uh, who said a possibly racist comment, but then she started trending on Twitter because of that. But like what I found interesting was about how people uh, share things and show their moral outrage to kind of um, show their virtue and that they're good people, mm -hmm. even if they don't necessarily believe or act on it themselves. Right. So there's lots of uh, virtue signaling, I believe is the term that mm -hmm. people tend to use. Um, Sherazade has some good points as well. Lots of things to be outraged about online. Norm violations. Digital marketing promotes, promotes moral outrage. Uh, triggers, costs. Let's, let's jump into that uh, right away. Uh, the article, I think, is exemplifying this meme. It uh, never gets old. This is what all Twitter debates look like. Uh, they're not debates per se, because um, you're only just amplifying what you already believe in. Um, but the article mentions that there are stimuli, there are responses, and there are outcomes. Does that sound familiar? Where have we heard those terms before, or terms that sound similar? Uh, Pavlov, hook model, hook, hook, uh, which is based on Mr. Pavlov himself. Um, actually, it's based on Skinner's model, but there we go. Um, so yeah, these are basically the, if you recall, I'm pretty sure you don't, I said that the hook model is using terms that are also used in other areas, just that they're phrased differently. So the hook model 
uses um, what is it triggers actions rewards and investments uh, some other scientists use stimulus response uh, reward some use cue action and outcome uh, this is yet another variation of it so there's a stimulus there's a response and there's an outcome um, when we apply that to the moral outrage in the digital age article uh, what she's basically saying um, actually let's start with what is moral outrage what's my moral kya hai? Uh, and then we can get to what is a moral outrage stimuli response and outcome uh, and that by definition is very hard to nail down what do we mean by mo morality I don't know, Essen, if you're typing or not, but that sounds like something right up your street. The deep philosophical questions that don't have a, a fixed answer, but you attempt to answer them anyway. Immoral mental dissonance with anything, says Hafsa. Uh, Twitter debates are centered around appeals to logos, logos, pathos ethos i'm guessing that's where um writing and calm <laughs> flashbacks uh my writing and calm instructor gave me a very strange compliment that i completely disagree with but that's one of the reasons why i think i'm teaching right now uh when i was uh giving a presentation of my research article she said uh, you you were born for presentations or something like that. Your voice is born for presentations, uh, which, like I said, I don't know where she got that from, but I guess now I have to present 28 times over the course of a semester. So here we are. <sighs> I've gotten tired just saying that. Um, you have some good answers. I think we intuitively understand what moral or morality is um, but let's think about how to apply that in this article so uh, first of all the stimuli by which we mean the trigger in the hook model um, if you do something that violates the moral norm of a community and let's be clear morals are relative uh, what is considered moral or immoral in Pakistan might be different from in the US, what's considered moral or immoral in LUMS might be different from outside LUMS. Any group of people, any community that you have has its own sets of what is right and what is wrong. And so a violation in one group might not be considered a violation in another group. Sherzade um, mentioned this, that moral violations are relatively rare in person and abundant online. Um, what she means by that is in person you might see something you might not see something there's only one thing you can look at uh, at a time there's only a handful of people that can be in front of you in person at any time online it's just person after person after person uh, different communities coming together that whole melting pot of people and what that means is that when you have all of these communities coming together the definition of what is right and what is wrong, what is moral and what is immoral changes. Um, if I'm in LUMS, I know that in LUMS, 
the norm is to do such and such and not do such and such. Online, I'm faced with a variety of communities, some from LAMS, some from outside LAMS, from Pakistan, outside Pakistan, all these groups of people that have changing moral values. And so what is considered to be um, a violation might depend on who it is that's tweeting and where they're tweeting from. Um, now, if you recall with the virality article, we talked about how negative high arousal emotions tend to go more viral. Outrage is exactly that. It's negative, it's high arousal, and um, in the vir virality article, they said anger. Outrage is pretty much anger, more or less. So anything that has negative valence and has that high arousal tends to be more likely to go viral. When it's more likely to go viral, you're more likely to see it. When you're more likely to see it, you're more likely to respond to it as well. And that response could be expressing outrage, could be sharing further on, could be anything. Uh, what do I mean by more moral violations are rare in person? Um, so if in person someone breaks a moral norm, it's that one person who's in front of you. In online communities, there are dozens and dozens of people who are doing it all the time. Uh, and so the impact, it's more frequent and it's more extreme, which is what I have written down here. I'm very proud of this slide, by the way, because it conforms to the shape of my chair. Nothing is blocked by my chair. Nice waterfall shape going like this. Um, and so, um, yeah, that's the last point. Uh, internet increases the frequency and extremity of that violation. Uh, and what that happens with online communities is because these high arousal negative emotions tend to go more viral, you're more likely to see them as well because they rank higher. Uh, and the word they use in the article is that they are super normal stimuli in that there's a normal stimulus or a trigger, super normal stimuli. Um, I don't know if that's an actual term, but that's what they've used in the article. I don't know if they made that up. Uh, it implies that the response is greater than what would normally be because the trigger is bigger as well. So um, we have that's the stimuli part covered. And as I said, I'm just going through the article quickly and then we'll jump into some of these things in a little more detail. Uh, then we have the response, which in the hook model is called the action. Uh, here, they're specifically talking about the action being the expression of outrage. This trigger was me looking at something that was a moral violation, something I disagree with. My action is to share it or retweet it or comment on it and express outrage. How dare you say that because I don't agree with it. Um, yes, Sherzad, you're more likely to forgive those who you know um, in person than strangers on the internet hold on to that thought, I'd like to discuss that. Um, and so when you take that action, because the internet increases the frequency and extremity of the triggers, if you keep doing the same action over and over, i.e. expressing outrage, um, one of two things might happen. You either get outrage fatigue, which is 
और कितनी चीज़ें हैं जिस पर मैं आउटरेज एक्सप्रेस करूँ एक दो चार दस उसके बाद द फिफ्टीथ थिंग दैट आई सी दैट आउटरेज इज़ मी आई माइट नॉट पे मच अटेंशन टू इट और the other way around the other extreme which is that venting anger gets me more angry and when i'm more angry then i'm more likely to take action and comment on more and more things um so i don't know if that holds true sometimes people say that you should just let go of it just vent it out but they claim that venting anger begets more anger and you know maybe it depends maybe i don't know uh it's something to think about does it help or not uh so that action when it's taken offline um as shirzade mentioned um it requires more effort and has consequences and online it's less so it's frictionless so um let's take a very common moral violation which is not wearing a mask um especially relevant uh, given the campus has opened uh if you see someone in person on campus not wearing a mask it requires effort to go up to them and tell them wear your mask it has unpredictable consequences they might punch you in the face they might laugh at you they you might lose a shot at ever being friends with them maybe it's your crush and you don't want to look silly by telling them to do something like that so there's all these barriers and you really really have to be outraged uh, enough for you to go up to them and say don't do it whereas online if you want to you know call someone out for not wearing a mask it's as easy as typing out a comment to no one in particular but getting the point across um or even easier than that just liking or retweeting something that someone has already said so it requires no action from your part um there's very little consequence of tweeting but there are larger consequences of going to people and telling them don't do this uh so that's like the like how easy an action is depends on how likely you are to do it so expressing outrage in person isn't as easy as expressing outrage online and so we do it less often um when it's less impactful hafsa absolutely um or is it let us discuss very soon um just as soon as i breeze through all of these things then we have rewards which they call outcomes in this article and they're saying that the outcomes can be positive or negative there is benefits and there's costs so benefits of expressing outrage online they're specifically talking about twitter um first there's limited risk of an unwanted response as i just said uh responses are more predictable you know the worst that someone can do online is just i don't know comment on your tweet or something in person could be anything um uh, going as far as physical danger and as uh, small as being socially ostracized because the other person doesn't agree with what you say um one of the other benefits of doing this online is that you build social clout um you say something and it echoes in your echo chamber and then all your friends come and like and retweet your you say and you build that credibility you build that um social clout again for lack of a better term uh where they're like yes well done we agree with you aise hi hona chahiye um you're not actually reaching out to anyone who does not wear a mask but people 
who do wear a mask and already agree with you that you should wear a mask are, are there congratulating you and so your impression management takes a boost. Um, reputation, thank you Zen, a better word for that. Um, the other thing is you can hide in a crowd. So if 10,000 people are tweeting about something, you can't, uh, the opposition can't single out one person. Uh, the Lums fee hike issue, it was if it was just one person, they would be easy to shut down. But if it's multiple people, thousands of people, then it becomes a faceless entity, a faceless movement. Um, and so it's more difficult to be singled out and say, okay, I want to, I don't know, punish this specific person. Um, and also one of the biggest benefits of doing something like this is that sometimes it does work. You want to hold people accountable. You want to tell them this is not right. If again, they don't wear masks, if enough people uh, chastise them about not wearing a mask, then it might actually lead to some action where they're like, okay, the 15 people around me do wear masks and they would like that I also wear masks. So maybe I will. Um, so it's, you know, helping you conform to uh, the intended behavior. Um, hey, Sabi, I see you got a haircut. I think you did. Am I right? Yes. Um, Miss Liaj video be called. I just want to show everyone your new haircut. Um, but then on the other hand, there are costs. So, uh, and these are some of the things that we're going to discuss uh, in a little more detail. One of the costs of expressing outrage online is that you reduce empathy. If you want to punish someone online, you have to be in a position where you aren't thinking of them as human beings. You're thinking of them as just an opposing point of view that I have to tackle. Um, and once you do that, one of the other things is you might not actually do something meaningful. So if you just hit retweet on a cause that you believe in, um, you might think, okay, that's it. I'm done. I've done my job for this movement On to the next one. So you might lack any meaningful change or action. Um, and then it's also harder to get across, uh, into someone else's echo chamber. So if I am in a group surrounded by people who believe that you should wear masks, and it's very hard to go into a group that believes that you shouldn't wear masks and reach out to them in a more meaningful way. Uh, and then, as I mentioned, outrage fatigue, there's only so many things you can care about at any one time. Uh, I, of course, Bisma, I have never seen Mean Girls, so you might want to elaborate on what the Mean Girls movie is. Uh, of course, I've heard of it, but it's not something I would voluntarily pick up and watch. Uh, so please explain for the benefit of everyone, but mainly just for the benefit of me. Uh, I am ashamed. Uh, sorry. Uh, Essence language. Essence. What's the one line summary of Mean Girls? And once Essence tells us that, um, okay, Abir hasn't watched it either. Abir, Abir, I already know you have good taste. Um, I know you spent your weekend listening to Baby Shark. So it's as good a way to spend a weekend as any. Um, so that's 
what the article says, but if you notice, the article doesn't particularly, um, you know, get into the science behind why some of these things are true. Uh, that's what we're here for. So we are going to look at some research papers that tackle some of these individual areas. So as a reminder, there's a stimulus, which is a moral violation. The response to that is action, which is I will punish the person. I will express outrage uh, for that moral violation. And then the outcome or the reward is that I build social clout. I feel like I've done something meaningful. Uh, I feel like I've brought about some change or, you know, I get that positive validation or feedback that, yes, you did something. Um, so when we get sciency, we are going to start from the very start, which is the evolutionary angle to why uh, doing this works. Um, now, there's this paper that says that punishing bad behavior has um, evolutionary benefits. I should have cited the paper. I forgot which one it is. Um, which is that they found out that when people punish other people, the brain areas associated with reward light up. So there is a certain pleasure in uh, telling some, putting someone in their place and punishing them. If someone violates a norm, you punish them, they stop violating that norm, you get that positive reward, your brain areas associated with, I forget which one would be dopamine, uh, don't quote me on that. Um, but there is actual behavioral scientific like evidence that shows that there is pleasure in punishment. And there's a very good reason for that because if someone violates a norm uh, in order to maintain societal harmony, a sense of community, a sense of safety, you want to punish that person. So if we think about it, uh, pleasure for the punisher, as in, uh, why would the punished be, you know, uh, so if we think about it in caveman terms, someone in the caveman community starts killing other cavemen and women. Um, you want to punish that person because it's a moral violation. Uh, and if you don't, then they just keep on doing it. And that threatens the safety of your community. Um, and very similarly, if you could think about it that with masks as well, someone who isn't wearing a mask is posing a threat to the rest of the community. So that community will want to punish them, express outrage in whatever form. Um, punishment could be something as simple as, please don't do it. Or it could be, I don't know, kicking you out of the campus, for instance. Um, and the reason for that is, like I said, societal harmony or community safety, um, things like that. Um, but here's the thing. Um, this was beneficial to actual communities where you had physical threats, where you had face-to-face -face threats. When you move online, that threat is vague, it's nebulous, it's nameless, faceless. There's no one particular person. And also it's a little threat. You know, so if someone online expresses that I shouldn't wear a mask, that one person doesn't really pose a threat to you specifically or a community. If someone in Midwestern USA says masks are for dummies, that doesn't really impact you in any way, shape or form. But we punish them anyway, because we want to get that uh, reward. Uh, I just mentioned brain areas and all that. Um, so what's happening is, let me move my chair a bit, you're getting that high psychological benefit of getting that reward, 
but for zero cost because why it's easy to punish someone online and despite them not being a threat you're still getting that reward for that action um yeah habitual behavior Zainab. Um, this whole thing is a habit like even the hook model refers to a habit forming behavior so uh, stimuli action and rewards are part of how a habit forms um so there is that then uh, we talk a little bit about what moral or emotional content is and how it impacts us here i have given that tiny citation here um so this paper found that for every moral or emotional word in a tweet the rate of retweeting went up by 15 to 20 percent uh, so that's what the numbers say uh, it's not just um oh moral content goes viral uh, there's actual studies that verify that yes indeed if a word is categorized as moral or emotional those tweets tend to be uh, a little more viral um, can anyone phrase two different tweets one with neutral language and one with a moral or emotional angle attached to the same thing quick exercise and meanwhile i look at the questions um yes abir the moral outrage and punishment expressing moral outrage or that action of punishing someone is a habit because of the trigger the stimuli and then the reward you get for doing that action um uh visma has a, a very good example joe biden wins the election uh the rat democrats have won and are steering us into the dark age um so one of these um so lena has some very good examples let's uh look at some of those in a little bit uh, which present precisely the same thing um and um the idea being that the more it's retweeted the more it's shared the more it gets attention because it's shooting up to the top of your news feeds and the more you see it the more attention it gets so it's uh, you know an infinite loop more attention leads to more sharing more sharing leads to more attention gets to more people and um sites like twitter and facebook are because they're all designed for engagement because their metrics are supposed to be how do we get people to spend more time on the app to show them more ads because that's a revenue model uh they look at what sort of content do people engage with more and lo and behold it, it turns out that moral and emotional content that provokes outrage is what people engage with more uh, even though it's there's a net negative there you're not enjoying being outraged it's a negative emotion but maybe you are because you're also getting rewarded for expressing that outrage from people who already believe in what you believe um again lots of questions and not enough answers that's science for you um then we have token support uh the heading just says token support you can just see the top of it um but before you read any of that uh let me just explain it to you this is just for later reference so here's the study uh, they did in which um so for context every october november uh, people in england wear a poppy on their chests to um show support for 
something in the world war or something. Um, if someone wants to give a better explanation than that, um, please tell me what it is. I haven't bothered, but it is to show support for the war or the troops or something like that. There's a red poppy they wear here. Um, so they did this study in England, Remembrance Day, yes, um, which is literally remembering what, what day are they remembering? What's the significance of that day? Uh, World War I. Um, so they went to people and uh, they asked them if they wanted a pin showing support for that cause. Uh, in this case, that pin was a poppy. Um, so with one group, if the people said, yes, we'd like to show support for Remembrance Day or whatever, um, they gave that group a sealed envelope in which they had that pin. And with the other group, instead of giving that pin in a sealed envelope, they went and put, them, put it on their chest uh, on the spot. Now, the difference between these two groups is that with the first group, it's private support. You ask me, do you want to support Remembrance Day or whatever? I say yes. So I've acknowledged that I do want to support it. And then you give me an envelope that says, well, here's a pin. You can put it on whenever you want. It's there for you. Now, no one else knows what's in the envelope. Only I know it. So that's expressing private support in that only me and the person who gave me that envelope knows what it's about and what I'm supporting. But in the second group, when you put it on my chest, then it's there publicly for everyone to see that I support that cause. Um, and it could be hundreds, if not thousands of people every single day that are seeing that on my chest and know what it's for. Um, so there's private support and then there's public support. And also understand that this is token support, like putting that thing on my chest doesn't really do anything. I haven't donated to a cause. I haven't you know, done anything meaningful. It's just there for show. So just like the Naam ka support kiya That's what they mean by token support. Um, so with these two people, they, that's how they differentiated between them. Uh, and then later they asked them to donate for that cause. So a few minutes later, they go up to them and say, would you like to donate for the troops or for Remembrance Day? Um, and they find that people with the private support donated more than people with the public support. Uh, so people who had that envelope with the pin in it they donated more than people who had the pin on their chest. Why do you think that might be the case? Maybe an internal need to compensate. Mm -hmm. The public ones felt they already showed support. Uh, public support was enough on their part. Uh, Pretty much, yes, uh, Lela and Mahir. Uh, and of course, there's no way to sort of get to that, but that's the hypothesis that they came up with. Like, this is the actual study, and then they conclude based on this hypothesis. That's probably why they were doing it for the clout, as Ali says. Um, so people with the public support, it satisfies their impression management motives. Remember impression management, which was we want to show people, um, we want to show ourselves to other people in a good light. We want to show the best possible image of ourselves. When I have that pin on my chest, then that satisfies that motive. Okay, okay now everyone knows that I'm doing this good thing and I don't need to do anything further. 
but people with the private token support, they're not benefiting from any impression management by this point because no one knows what's in the envelope or what I what I'm supporting. So they've already said that yes, they'd like to support the cause. And now when you ask them, oh, would you like to donate? Then in order to not have that cognitive dissonance, in order to align their values with their actions, they say, yes, I'd like to donate. And they donate more, um, possibly because that's their way of showing meaningful support rather than wearing a pen immediately. Um, and so how that's relevant for Twitter is that if you've expressed something online, then it might be the case that you're done. Like that's it. I don't want to do anything further. Whereas people who are on the ground working for a cause because they're there and because they don't have that safety net of the internet that says, oh, you're doing something, uh, they want to take more action that's more visible uh, on the ground. And of course, it depends. So it could be a range of people who are on either end. It could be that the people who are on the ground are also active online and they're doing both public and private support. Uh, but that's the hypothesis that they have. Um, hasn't the value of public support increased? Uh, doing your part. Uh, we are going to discuss exactly that. That's the main discussion for today. Uh, does it matter? Does it make a difference? Um, get, is the point to get it viral or is the point to make a meaningful difference? So with the campus reopening, for instance, the point of that movement is to reopen the campus. It's not, you shouldn't care whether a thousand people see the hashtag or whether a million people see the hashtag as long as the campus is opened um, because that's the action that you want to take. So is the purpose to get it viral, to get the word out, or is it to actually do your part and do something meaningful? Um, so we've discussed all these costs and benefits, but why do we do it? And that's exactly what uh, Mahir is referring to. We do it because it makes us feel like we've done something. In a lot of causes, we can't really do anything. Uh, if children are dying in Africa, you can't really do much about that. Maybe you, I don't know, send a few dollars of support and that's about it. And even then you know that that's not really doing anything meaningful. Uh, since as it makes us feel seen and heard, yes. Um, and so instead of saying, I can't do anything, me retweeting that or sharing something or changing my profile picture, as Minal says, uh, makes me feel like I've done something, kuch kia, even if that something might not actually make a difference to anything at all. It makes us feel good rather than contribute to the cause. So are we doing it for ourselves or are we doing it for the cause? Uh, that's something to think about. Are we doing it to make ourselves feel validated, get that reward of positive feedback? Or are we doing it to make a meaningful difference in whatever that cause is? Because doing the meaningful thing has more friction. There's more effort required to go out and, I don't know, talk to the vice chancellor and hold protests and make placards and have discussions. And it's easier to just 
retweet someone who's already doing those things and say, well, my part is done here. Um, so altruism is being discussed. I didn't, uh, that's another good point, uh, Mahi. Are you doing it because everyone is doing it and you might get called out for not doing something. So that again is, um, I think Lena has it in her notes, outrage about people not getting outraged enough. Uh, Lena, can you remind us what the four types of outrage were? There's uh, very amusingly phrased. Um, yeah, there's outrage, then there's outrage about the outrage, then there's outrage about not being outraged enough. And wait, the fourth one was, um, yeah, uh, outrage because of the action to the outrage. Yeah. Right, so there's a lot of angry people on the internet at any one time. Uh, lots of outrage for everyone. It is in no short supply. Thank you, Dina. Um, the next part of it is, is there a better way? Like we've talked about how, you know, outrage may or may not help. Sometimes it helps, many times it doesn't. Can we do something differently? So what follows next is a series of helpful tips and tricks, if you might want to call it that, about how might we you know, take more meaningful action. Uh, and I'll go through a couple of them uh, and then we'll take a break around 6.15, so eight minutes from now. Um, the first of these is being neutral. So we already know that moral and emotional words are more likely uh, to go viral. Um, but research finds that tweets without the moral and emotional words are more likely to be engaged with by people from opposing points of views. So saying Joe Biden won the election is more likely to be engaged with by a Trump supporter than the rat Democrats, uh, whatever Bisma said. Actually, that's the inverse uh, of that. So they're more likely, it's more likely to be engaged with, with Trump supporters. But expressing an opinion without the moral, emotional connotations makes it a little more welcoming for someone to come in and express their opinion because they're not afraid of being uh, punished, afraid of backlash. Um, screaming at someone never works if you want them to change their mind. Um, unless you're a parent and you scream at a kid, it might work. But in adult life, I don't think that uh, yelling at someone has ever paused, like no one's ever stopped and said, you know what, uh, that was a very loud scream. Uh, you're right, I should change my mind. Uh, so try being a little more welcoming, a little more uh, embracing of the opposing point of view and not sprinkling your tweets with, you know, words that you know will provoke um, action and that action isn't going to be the, the action that you want to happen. Then um, there's humanizing the opposition. I already talked about how when you're tweeting, uh, you have that gap in empathy. When you punish someone online, it's easier to do because online they're just a name and an avatar. It's just a profile picture. Uh, often that profile picture isn't even of the person. It's some random like 
flower or half a face or something like that. And especially on Twitter, even the name isn't their actual name. It's some fun handle, uh, you know, the sort. What are some fun handles? I know my friend's handle is Paratha Roll. I always found that to be amusing. So people aren't really using their actual names either. So it's just uh, everyone's anonymous. And so it just feels like there's a an avatar. There's this nameless, faceless person um, online that you might have to, you know, push. When you do this in person, it's hard because if I tell you to your face, your opinion sucks. First of all, I'm not going to do that. Uh, and second, if I do that, then I will see those consequences immediately. You know, if I make someone cry, if I make someone anxious or angry, I can see those consequences in front of me with their words, their faces, their expressions. I can see those emotions. And so being in person means that I'm humanizing them more. And so I'm less likely to be overly harsh with what I say. But online, it's just, um, as Hafsa says, the egg avatar, uh, back when egg avatars were a thing. And so it's like, okay, this is just a random opinion on the internet. Let me, you know, punish this person for that opinion. Um, and that's backed by research here that says that um, they had two groups uh, exposed to a, 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 an opposition political view. So if you're a Democrat, they might, you know, have something from a Republican agenda uh, given to you with one group. They just had that opinion written down. And with the other group, they gave them the same opinion, but there was a voice reading that transcript. So why do you think that might help? What's the difference between writing a message on WhatsApp and sending a voice note instead. The medium is the message. Tone, humanization, the message. There's more nuance to it. You can tell when someone is voice as emotions, yes. Um, and you can hear those emotions. So that's what the human brain is attuned to. You don't need to even see that person to know what they might be feeling, you can tell just from hearing their voice, that little bit of excitement, that little bit of surprise, that fear, that cracking of a voice, that pause. Um, when I say something and then I pause and I think about it for a few seconds and then I continue, all of those gaps, those silences, that tone, um, it adds to the message. Whereas when you read something, it's just there and it's open for interpretation. Um, if you've ever read a book, I mean, I, I hope you've ever read a book. I, I, I sure hope that all of you have read a book. But if you have, um, if you haven't, I feel sorry for you. Um, if you have, you adopt that voice in your head, the author's voice. When you're reading through different characters, you assign them a certain tone, a certain, I don't know, voice. And for each of the different books you read, that might be different. Um, but you're doing that based on your own worldview. When you're reading something online, again, it's for you to decide what the relevant voice is. But when you listen to someone, they have that voice that they want to convey. So you're not taking over 
this is how this person felt or this is how this person thinks when they wrote that. They convey what uh, they do with that. Uh, texts cause more misunderstandings, yes, because everything down to the full stop can mean something. Uh, I remember we did k.ok.okay.okies, okis, all of those things, all the emojis. Uh, there's all, also this amusing thing that happens when Android and uh, Windows and iOS all have their different drawings of the emojis. So one emoji coming from an iPhone user and going to an Android user might be portrayed completely differently. Uh, this emoji, by the way, it's terrible on Slack. You, where it go? This simple smiley on Zoom means something else. On an um, iOS keyboard, it's a nice welcoming smiley face. On Slack, it converts to the two dots and the very evil, like, mm, wily smiley face. It's very creepy. Yes, that's the word. Um, and so with this research, back to that, they found that people who just read the transcript of that opinion were less empathetic. Um, and people who listened to the voice were a little more empathetic and understanding, which is why, uh, fun fact, I, I read about this months ago, but recently Twitter has started including voice memos as well. So instead of writing down the tweet, you can actually record your voice and post that as a tweet. Uh, and I'm pretty certain that a major part of the reason why they've added that to their design is precisely research like this that shows the voice adds more humanity. Um, so we're down two pro tips about how to tweet better. Uh, let us pause here. Uh, Lena, you'll have to tell Moid what your song selections are. He is our DJ and we shall come back in about seven minutes. Um, essence says, can't it backfire? Um, it could, yes. Southern accent. Um, I don't know if there's research about that, um, but yes, even the accent conveys something. Uh, maybe that's something you can do for your SPROJ. How much of the message is impacted by it being a voice versus written word? And how much of it is impacted by the voice being a neutral accent versus a specific accent? Um, Moid, if you are there, take it away. And we shall resume in six or seven minutes. Picked up on my easing the song out. Good job on your excellent DJ skills. Um, let's reduce the volume gradually. Let us resume. I see that the rate of video has gone down dramatically from the start of the semester. Nina is only there because she has to be there. And the rest of you are Zoom fatigued. Hmm. One of the other problems with not having videos, it's very hard to know when people are back and focused. So hello, people. Hello. 
Welcome back. We are ready to resume. Um, back and focused. Thank you. Um, I will uh, assume that Sherzade speaks for everyone. And everyone is back, focused. Um, Zoom chat needs emojis to respond. No, you have to respond with your voice or video or type out. We don't do easy things here. Uh, Ali, where is your, what are, what are, what's distracting you, Ali? Zoom needs deleting message also. Why would, what could you possibly say in a Zoom chat that you would want to delete afterwards? Um, okay. Next up, we have our old friends in groups and out groups. Uh, well, uh, Bismai and Hafsa, that's a problem with Zoom not doing a good job of DMs versus public messages. I don't think a delete message should be necessary if they fixed that. Uh, also, Zoom is because of that a terrible way to send private messages. Just use WhatsApp or something. You have Slack, you can send each other messages there as well. Um, okay, we are gonna go back into in-groups and out-groups uh, with one of my favorite studies. Um, and here's how it goes. Again, um, I prefer you just listen to my version instead of reading what's behind me. Uh, it's easier to understand that way. Um, so this study was done in England and Here's what it did. Uh, they had a group of Manchester United fans. Um, are we, do we have any Manchester United fans here? I know Sabi is one. Uh, anyone besides that? Or Liverpool fans? Because those are going to come up very shortly. Okay, the other, like Ali Asghar. Ali, should I call you Ali Asghar or Ali Amr? Or do you go by Ali Asghar Amr? Ali works. That wasn't the wasn't on the options that I gave you, but sure. Uh, so here's what it did. They asked a group of Manchester United fans to write about why they love Manchester United. Fairly simple. Write a 250 word essay. Um, and then they said, okay, for the next phase, uh, you go to this other building and watch a film about football. Uh, and then they asked them to write something about that film as well. Um, but here's what happens. I guess I have to move out of the way. Uh, while they're on their way uh, to that other building, after writing about why they love Manchester United, uh, they have this actor who's jogging and he pretends to fall and hurts himself. Now, what they did was measure how many people stopped and tried to help that person. So you see someone falling while on a run, your natural inclination should be that you go up and ask them, are you okay at the bare minimum? Uh, at this point, there was no one else around. So they removed like other people that you you don't have the option of saying, you're the only one there. So it's up to you to decide to go up to that person and help them or not. Um, but what they did was that jogger, the actor who pretends to hurt himself, uh, in the first group of people, all of these are Manchester United fans, in the first group, the actor is wearing a Manchester United shirt. 
in the second group, he's wearing a Liverpool shirt, which is a rival team. And in the third group, he's wearing a plain shirt. So when you go to that other building, you've just written about how much you love Manchester United. And then you come outside and you see someone falling who's wearing a Manchester United shirt. Um, they measured how many people would stop and help the jogger in each of these conditions. And any guesses for what might be the result? You have a team that you support and you just told lower empathy for Liverpool. It seems to be the likely scenario. Lane has highest. Um, not so much. Here are the results straight from the paper. Uh, the, uh, Mahir, uh, it must feel nice to be so innocent that they all have equal. That's not how people work. Uh, so I guess I have to move out again. Here are the results. So out of 13 people, 12 stopped to help the Manchester United shirt and one person didn't. Plain was four people helped and eight didn't. And Liverpool, only three people helped and seven didn't. So you've just primed these people to think about themselves as Manchester United fans. And now they're more likely to help Manchester United fans and extremely unlikely to help a Liverpool fan. And then Plain is somewhere in the middle, uh, I guess. Um, so what that points to is that when you think about other people as an in-group, I'm a Manchester United fan, that person is a Manchester United fan, therefore I'm more likely to help that person. As opposed to an out-group, I'm a Pakistani, the other person is a Yehudi or Yehudi, so help And then the same person, if you think about them as a, I don't know, Muslim or Pakistani or something like that, then they fall in your in-group. Um, and to test that, they did another version of this experiment in which um, if you go back here, um, here they asked him to write about why they love Manchester United. They're all Manchester United fans. In another version of this, they asked them to write about why they love football. So now it's not, it's now it's Manchester United fans writing about why they love football as a sport. Uh, and then they do the same thing, go to another building to watch it. So it's the same setup, the same actor, the same conditions. And any guesses as to how that might change the, the results? In the first experiment, they were primed to think about themselves as Manchester United fans. In the second experiment, they're primed to think about themselves as football fans. Same for all. Um, SN, uh, I think this is the experiment that you would, we were referring to before I mentioned that they would see football fans as an in-group as opposed to any single club. Um, so this is what happens. Uh, Manchester United fans, still the same. Liverpool fans, completely inwards. They are more likely to help Liverpool fans as well. <laughs> but for some reason, nobody helps the plain-shirted person. Seven people did not help the guy in the plain shirt and so the conclusion they sort of draw from this is that um, it's always beneficial to be part of the other person's in-group um, but it's not as beneficial to be part of no group so 
either be an in-group or an out-group, but not belonging to any group at all uh, does not spark particular emotion or affinity one way or another. Um, and so how that how that's relevant in Twitter is that maybe you should think about people as in-groups more than anything else um, in the um, give me a Twitter argument or a movement or whatever, masks or fee hike or whatever. Um, if the cause is to help Muslims in Palestine, then you and the VC uh, are an in-group, boycott France, there we go. Uh, and so uh, you're not you know, inclined towards hating on the VC if you're boycotting France and the VC is also boycotting France. Um, but if the issue is opening lums and the VC is an outgroup, he's an older gentleman who doesn't agree with what you say, now you're an outgroup. So it's very interesting to think about the very same people being an in-group or an outgroup depending on the cause. And so on Twitter, instead of thinking about people as the other, the opposition, think about what you might have in common with them. And that's a good way to start a discussion with them and to engage with them, uh, bringing up the common factors first and then discussing um, the differences. The person who came up with Maya, or at least the author who I gave you, uh, also uses that argument, Maya alert again, uh, that if you want to change someone's opinion on something, uh, think about Maya, think about what is familiar between you and the other person. Instead of giving them this brand new extreme opposing idea, think about where that middle ground is first. What is the familiar thing? And then start moving towards the most advanced, the novel idea. Um, and you're much more likely to make headway uh, that way. Instead of just starting like, you are here, I am here, and then having an argument and you go even further apart. Um, so again, identify common interests, view people as in-groups, and when you establish that commonality, then you are able to talk about differences. Uh, and I saw Facebook doing that. Uh, let me show you an example. So this is what happens when you open someone's profile. I just open someone like, so I was in a group and, uh, you know, I don't know if this appears on the computer version. I think it does. If you're in LDF, for instance, and you click on someone's profile, a different version of that profile opens up as opposed to if something comes up on your newsfeed. So this is the standard Facebook profile that opens up. But if you click on someone's profile while you're in a group, uh, you get this version instead, which is telling you that you have things in common right up there, uh, mutual friends, what other groups you are a member of. And then instead of showing uh, their whole profile, they just show you their recent activity on that specific group. Um, and what that does is instead of trying to find differences, someone makes a controversial comment, you open their profile and then you start stalking them and you're like, you see things in common first. And then that view profile button, if you notice the third button, it's still there, but now it's behind an additional click. So that little bit of friction uh, forces you to think about that person uh, as an in-group. In this case, quite literally an in-group because it's telling you 
what other groups they're a part of as well. Um, so finding commonalities, again, that's very hard to do on Twitter because, you know, there's not much happening there like there is on Facebook. Uh, but that's one way to think about people in a little more of a humanizing fashion. Um, then it's individualizing people. So instead of thinking about France as one big nebulous country, think about individual people in France. Why? Because when you talk to individuals, you're much more likely to humanize them and find those commonalities versus when you're preaching to a group of people. So in the Lums issue saying admin SE hai, who is admin? Um, we don't know, there's some group of people. Um, usually it's the VC or Adnan Khan that are singled out for that sort of stuff. Um, but talking to Adnan Khan or the vice chancellor is a much better approach than just talking about the admin, the establishment, all these large terms. Um, why? Because you can use personal relevancy. You can use a customized message. Uh, you can do that with the VC, find out what you have in common with him. I don't know, my dad went to the same university as the VC, so I'll use that as a talking point, for instance. Um, but if you talk to the admin, then it's just, oh, there's students and there's admins, and now, you know, start the argument. Um, and also, like I said, you can customize the message and you can try and avoid confirmation bias. Try and avoid, because it's very hard to do that. Uh, in general. Uh, then it's being private. And this is something that's um, particularly difficult with Twitter. Twitter is public. It's there for everyone to see. And so when you attack someone's opinion in public, uh, you're not helping them change that opinion. You're just doing the exact opposite, which is that they won't express that opinion again, or they'll double down and express that even harder if that's the correct verb for it. Um, as opposed to just talking to them one-on-one, -on -one, um, just message them, messaging them directly. But we don't do that, why? Because that's not gonna give us the social rewards of likes and retweets, right? If you come across something that you disagree with, um, DM that person or you know, take that conversation off the public sphere and you're much more likely to make headway. Um, I remember doing that once, inspired by one of my uncles who was having this argument in a WhatsApp group that had like 80 people in it. And they were just exchanging long message after long message arguing about something. And then he stopped and then he just called up the person instead. And that calling up the person, what that does is you don't have 78 other people egging you on or watching you. WhatsApp may reactions name, but if you imagine Twitter, um, you are getting those micro feedback from uh, other people. Calling up that person means you're humanizing them. It's one-on-one, -on -one. no one else is around to hear you. You're using your voice, um, even more humanity. Um, and that way, again, it's personalized, it's relevant to that person. And so they're much, you're much more likely to not uh, be snarky praise your message uh, because on Twitter, you know that the more emotional language you use, the more uh, you know you put down that person, the higher the reward by getting more retweets. Um, you see that happening on Trump's tweets all the time. He says something outrageous and then someone says, 
this is coming from a man who did this in his past and then i was like yes like 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 um and also because no one likes to admit they're wrong in public uh, it's hard enough to do that in person in public when you're surrounded by what a group of four or five friends but to do that in front of millions of people on twitter that's almost never likely to happen um and here's an a particularly amusing example i found uh so before we get to this what is self preservation if you've come across that term in social psych um we know what the self is so even if you haven't what does the word preservation imply self preservation this would be a good point to play this cuz i am not going to move ahead until we have some answer self control uh not really no what does it mean when we say we want to preserve something protecting yourself uh yeah that would be that includes your identity i think those two sentences capture the the gist of it uh I am a certain way I've presented myself to be a certain way and now um if someone challenges that I want to preserve that self image by reinforcing the things that make me that person um so for instance if I am if I feel strongly about masks and someone says oh but don't you think masks do this and that now I'll double down uh and even if that person has a valid point ke i don't know masks are very expensive bad argument but for instance they say that now i've already expressed that i am a supporter of masks so now instead of accepting their point of view i'm going to you know try and come up with more and more uh, evidence that supports my claim because i want to preserve my self identity as a mask supporter maintaining one version of yourself and that's hard to do uh when you're being punished in public so even if you do make a valid point i am not going to say you know what you're right because i've just spent my entire life tweeting about this one cause and then suddenly you tell me oh you know what actually as nahi hota i'm not going to say oh you're right so this is a tweet that i came across back when covid was fresh um for those of you who are on facebook right now in the other window on your browser i can read it out for you or you could just come back and open zoom again hello come back to zoom um and so this lady says i got this rumor can anyone confirm if this is true or not al fata mein staff ko uh wo tha it's not covid's first birthday i think of covid birthday as 12th march or 17th march or something like that uh so that's when it was real for us uh या वुहान में चलो मान लेते हैं सो दिस लेडी आस्क्स फॉर एनी वन टू कन्फर्म इफ अलफता स्टाफ में ये हुआ फर्स्ट यू नो लिटिल बिट ऑफ अ स्ट्रेंज रिक्वेस्ट हाउ वुड एनी वन कन्फर्म दैट एंड लेस इट केम स्ट्रेट फ्रॉम अलफता एंड इफ इट डिड देन यू नो वी डोंट ट्रस्ट दम एग्जैक्टली सो दिस इज द आई डोंट नो हाउ मच यू कैन सी because i've hidden my self view here we go 
this is the response that she gets from this person. Um, are you able to see it here? I can barely see it. So it says, uh, I heard the same thing, but only one person, they'll disinfect and no need to panic. And then this is her response. Uh, again, I don't know if you can, I guess you can't see it, right? Can you see the whole slide? Let me just stop the video so you can see the whole thing, which is very amusing in how overblown it is. Uh, I did not ask for advice. Again, this is me ascribing a tone to this woman's voice. Uh, I'm sure if she'd said this in person, if these two people were having this conversation in person, it would be a complete non-event uh, because there's nothing in it content-wise, but because of the emotional words being used, uh, the conversation flares up like that escalated quickly. Uh, this Karen, um, I took the screenshot back in April, uh, but I, the one thing I remember from her profile was that she said she was a critical thinking teacher. So that's I don't, amusing. Uh, and so, you know, she says, send me advice and not gaslighting. Now, um, if she posts things that are actually gaslighting and she gets these sorts of responses, it makes sense for her to be accustomed to doing, uh, to having this sort of response. Why? Because, um, you know, that's something that happens to her. But now because it happens to her so frequently, it's her go-to response. And so she's punishing people uh, for moral outrage where it doesn't even apply because that's her go-to thing. It's very likely that sometimes she did do this and she got that positive validation and now she's more likely to you know use these kinds of words because of the reward that she gets um uh, i think i had another example so this is like a few things about twitter specifically uh 280 characters are not enough to ever have a compelling argument um so Twitter by design is not made for debates and yet people have debates on there. Um, it's made to be a series of tweets. So you engage in system one thinking. It's very easy to tweet and you can post multiple short tweets. So it's tap, 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 hit the tweet button, that's it. Um, and then also it's a very, very public platform, microblogging. Yes, it, the whole design of Twitter is geared towards people sharing quick, short, half-baked thoughts very quickly. Um, and that's the complete opposite of whether, if you want to have meaningful debate. Uh, and so I'll get back to this slide because that's where our discussion starts. Um, I guess the conclusion here is to be a little more empathetic that do I have this slide here? Uh, oh yeah, I do. Uh, to be a little more thoughtful and kind when engaging with people online or offline, but especially online because you tend to dehumanize them uh, more online and uh, it's just easy to, you know, take on someone and not think of the consequences. <laughs> yes, Sherzade. Uh, when I wrote these slides, I just wrote Arab Spring and Black Lives Matter, the Lums fee hike, I 
wrote in just now not nearly the same thing but it's more personally relevant because we aren't arabs and we aren't black but we are lumenites so um nina uh you can either start the debate with asking some of these questions or uh you can start with showing us some of the very amusing tweets that you gathered and we can discuss those before thinking about it from our own lens uh this slide is basically saying that we've just trashed on twitter this whole time but clearly it's good for something because of the lums fee hike and campus reopening and black lives matter to kuch to ho raha so does it work or does it not work uh what is arab spring uh acha sawal hai we'll we'll discuss that outside of class but google it but yes um, you know what I, you have for us um, i guess i can show the tweets i found yeah mm-hmm. yeah i'm waiting at screen share okay yeah um so this is one i zoom in a bit So um Marvi Sirmad is an activist and apparently a very controversial person and she tweeted this sometime in August and iske baad wo shuru ho gaya tha trend arrest Marvi Sirmad and when when I first saw this tweet I really didn't get what she's saying and it took me it took me quite some time to understand kiska sara masla kya tha So uh this tweet caused like a lot of outrage and this was one of the responses joy with Hafsa is asking what was the masla Um she said something uh, so basically she said something about um Hazrat Isa and she linked it to the Baloch insurgencies and how people just get kidnapped over there That was the masla and then our Pakistani com just turned it into a new masla I'm just looking at some of the words that are being used. This mm-hmm. should not be tolerated. And uh, notice how doesn't say Pakistan. It's Islamic Republic of Pakistan and in Riyadh-e-Medina. So that's invoking religiosity. Uh, for you to think about it from an angle of religion and not from an angle of Pakistaniyat. So immediately it's creating an in-group and an out-group. uh let's look at some more tweets and i want you to look at the language and then think about how you would rephrase whatever is being provoked in more neutral language okay so this was another tweet by one of the lums instructors and it did made it made rounds on social media and even mango bars wrote an article on it and this was the response to it Mango Bar's writing an article on something is not news, so especially lums related. So, like, I generally ne- I didn't see anything wrong in the tweet itself, but the response was quite amusing. Wait, yeah, though.
Mahir says lums enough is emotional language. The word lums has connotations about a certain mindset, a certain type of person, again, making an in-group versus an out-group. Religion arouses strong emotions. Um, I'm surprised so few people have something to say about this. The, the more things you say, the shorter this class will be. So get your discussion mode on, please. Nina, are you reading the chat? Is yeah. there something you can pick out? Yeah. Context is missing always, Hafsa. Um, no, the pink day thing was quite funny. I'm pretty sure I came across that, but I've forgotten what was it again. Um, I think pink day ki koi video leak hui thi of some people dancing at the Khoka and wo Muharram mein ja ke hui thi. So the thing was ke, oh, Lams is having a party in Muharram. Mm -hmm. And you know, un-Islamic, liberal feminists and whatnot. Essence yeah, says people love to hate Dr. Tirmani. Yes, they do. Mm -hmm. And there's Let's something. Let's see some more tweets. I think you have another one by her. Yeah, I have yeah. four by her. This is one I found quite funny. Something. <laughs> it's just it's expressing outrage against the U.S. elections, mm -hmm. and it had over a million retweets. Yes, and that's the point, isn't it? It's hard to say these things to people in person. And it's easy to do that online. Um, but on the other hand, um, bad things happen. Uh, is there a point in saying some of these things online? Who is Dr. Kirmani catering to? Um, I would imagine that as we just saw in the lecture uh, all the likes the retweets the positive comments are from people who already support her points of view and all the hate is from people who will never support her point of view so what is the point of expressing such and such opinion other than for the sake of expressing that opinion because it's not intended to change behaviors or if it is it's certainly not changing any behaviors um, Should I move on to the next one? Sure. Okay, so here's a, okay. So here are two tweets by Dr. Kirmani. So one of them is quite normal, a very po nice positive tweet, and it only has like seven sixteen likes and sixty four retweets. While the other one, which is relatively negative, it has one point four k likes and twenty five retweets. So this just shows how. Uh, negative emotions actually um, end up going viral and evoke outrage. Mm -hmm. Even in your example of the positive tweet, if she had said that, so how would you phrase this neutrally? I guess it's a pretty easy tweet to neutralize instead of using the words that she has. 
Here is my academic work. Yes, full stop. That's it. That's the whole tweet, as they say in Twitter jargon. Uh, and if she did that, then she'd probably get what, ten likes, because mm. it's neutral. It's not very. There is no high arousal emotion with this is my academic work, but then because of the keywords that she's putting in, the libtard NGO auntie thing, even with a positive tweet, she's phrased it in a way that will get those seven hundred and sixteen likes. Um, and then Mahir says maybe uh, it will make more people argue and in the end maybe someone gets convinced to the other side um, I have an opinion on that what is your opinion Nina or anyone else I personally think personally think especially under Dr. Kirmani's tweets they're just people and they're arguing amongst themselves and she isn't even replying to most of them and then they get angry because she isn't replying and then they get and then people get angry why she isn't replying. So it's a very funny cycle which just repeats yourself. So in the end, the thing just deviates from the topic. Right. And maybe, maybe one person might get convinced. But as the meme goes, but at what cost? At what cost is several hundred more people who are now even more steeped in their hate for Dr. Kirmani or in their support for her. So is it worth that one person changing their mind uh, in spreading or, you know, getting people to be even more deeply rooted in what they already believe in? I believe that, I don't know, Nida Kirmani is a, in her own words, a liptard NGO auntie. And then she posts another controversial tweet and I am now even more firmly of the belief that that is exactly what she is. Um, as Sabi says, when has anyone changed their opinions because of Twitter? Uh, yeah, RTs. Uh, people have changed opinions negatively. Are there more tweets? Yeah. There's, yeah, there's plenty. Just open Twitter on any normal day and find some of these. Yeah. Um, I still haven't seen any Twitter drama today, which is funny. When I was Twitter check, I couldn't find new tweets. But um, I think this one, this one is an example of a successful um, Twitter trend. Because I think the height didn't get implemented, at least with senior batch. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Let's go see Ajka Twitter drama, says Mahir. Um, <clears throat> let's and this, yeah. and this one was another example of a successful Twitter um, trend about the Arzu Raja case. Um, and yeah, I think the girl is now in a shelter home and away from the guy who kidnapped her and married her. Right. Um, let's pause here you wanted to talk about comedic anger so let's do that as well so um i found this one particularly funny because it's expressing outrage but through sarcasm and irony and well donald trump was the best example i could find uh, lots of tweets about donald trump also express comedic yeah. anger here's an opportunity